Great. So today I want to emphasise the importance of Olive Schreiner's only uh, completed novel and published in her lifetime, The Story of an African Farm, which appeared in 1883. As a textual intervention that disrupts the prescribed totality of a Eurocentric literary and colonial historiography. The novel's engagement with a plethora of highly contested cultural and political issues have led some critics to dismiss it as a kind of southern exotic or literary platypus whose ungainly combination of parts and functions seems to flummox both classification and periodization. However, the novel's refusal to assume a comfortable position within the dominant metropolitan discourses of the period, from religious and evolutionary debates to issues of race, gender and imperialism, lends it a political charge that transforms Schreiner's text into a poignant critique of what Jean-Francois Lyotard would call the grand narratives of a progressive Western historiography. The meta-narratives of which the story of an African farm is constructed, the title itself draws attention to the novel's fictionality, introduces spaces of discursive unravelling that complicate and question the ideological confidence of the issues that it tackles. These spaces are embedded for Schreiner, I shall argue, within the physical and conceptual space of the southern African landscape. Today, the story of an African farm still resists assimilation into these linear narratives, and this paper shall demonstrate how Schreiner's preoccupation with the African veld and its silenced native peoples paved the way for literary texts that, where Schreiner's novel had to acknowledge the limitations of its metropolitan readership's <laughs> ideological biases, would be taken up by other writers in a range of directly resistant ways in the fraught political zone of 20th century South Africa. In his discussion of the story of an African farm, Jedi Stey brackets the question of political intention, arguing that the novel's remarkable force stems not from Schreiner's avowed views, hopelessly mixed and impossible co to correlate definitively to the book we have, but from its systematic assimilation of an, of an uneven and markedly colonial temporality into its plot structure, characterization, and figurative language. He uses this assertion to argue that it is the novel's awkward temporal scheme that challenges the formal, di challenges the formal dictates of the Girton building's roman with that genre's conventional sense of teleological and masculinist destiny. This paper extends Easter's assertion that African farm invokes, complicates, and subverts the building's Roman, a genre driven by a linear progression that fueled a distinctly patriarchal imperialist discourse, to argue that Schreiner self-consciously engages with and dislodges a broader Western literary tradition, embodied for her within the narrative conventions of the 19th century realist novel and signified metonymically in the figure of Shakespeare. Furthermore, where Eastai dismisses the political to avoid tackling Schreiner's hopelessly mixed ideological agendas. By drawing on Frederick Jameson's theory of the political unconscious, I argue that the rifts and discontinuities of African farms' narrative embody anxieties that reflect the shift in the socio-economic realities of Southern Africa during this period of high imperialism. Understanding the novel's incon inconsistent ideological engagement in this way enables a reinterpretation of the text as intensely political its textual silences, the gaps and ab absences that emerge from within the southern African landscape of its geographical setting, are made explicit by its meta-narratological construction and operate as narrative spaces in which, to draw on another Marxist critic, Pierre Macheret, the presence of ideology can be most positively felt. J.M. Kurtzier has drawn attention to the silences that are scattered throughout the broader genre of the South African farm novel arguing that the genre's truth lies in what it dare not say for the sake of its own safety, and what it doesn't, or in what it does not know about itself, in its silences. It's significant, then, that as the founding novel of this genre, Shriner's African Farm employs a series of meta-narratological techniques 
to draw her, teacher's her, her reader's attention to these silences, transforming the implicit into the explicit. This is intensified when we consider that the novel writes the apparently silent or empty cultural and geographic colonial space into the buzzing intellectual heart of the British Empire. Though writing the main body of her novel as a governess in South Africa in the late 1870s, Shrana moved to London in 1881, where she remained for several years, and where African Farm was first published in 1883. This spatial disjunction, to use Frederick Jameson's term, between metropole and periphery enables the novel to produce a sustained critical reflection upon the various discourses that it engages, with uh, dislodging and deconstructing Victorian grand narratives of patriarchy and empire. It's for this reason that I combine my reading of Shriner's meta-narratives with a discussion of the landscape she represents. Her narrative self-awareness gesture towards its own fra fra uh, fragility and unsuitability. The landscape remaining alien, impenetrable, without a language in which to win it, speak it or represent it. For those who are unacquainted with Shriner's novel, I'll just give a brief overview of its stru structure. The novel is split into two parts. The first is largely realist in its narrative form, as it charts the, uh, charts the early life of, life of its child protagonists. In this first section, the farm that is the, se uh, the setting of almost the entire novel is allegorically invaded by a comic villain called Bonaparte Blenkins, whose name references a broader imperial context. In the second part, after Bonaparte's departure, the conventional narrative style breaks down and fragments. This, sec this second section begins with two intensely philosophical chapters that centre around the landscape, before returning to a plot that nevertheless becomes disjointed and anti-chronological. In this latter half, Schreiner takes up the rich symbolic currency that pervades, that pervades the first in a move that creates a self-referential textual and spatial web that denies the reader a sense of finality or conclusion. By first invoking the tradition of the realist no novel's narrative style, a tradition founded on its confidence in the ability of literature to represent a totalised and complete vision of the world, Schreiner dismembers this ideological illusion through allusion to the violence of a profit-driven colonialism and the impression and dispossession of the native Africans. In doing so, African farm enacts a formal deconstruction of the then dominant and distinctly Eurocentric literary genre. We can chart Schreiner's engagement with landscape and meta-narrative by turning to the novel's opening paragraph. The first sentence of the novel reads, The full African moon pulled down its, uh, poured down its light uh, from the blue sky into the wide, lonely plain. Our eyes are immediately drawn by the light of the moon to the broad landscape. The solemn monotony of the plain, flat and two-dimensional, is broken by the three-dimensional stunted Karoo bushes, the low hills, the milk bushes and the small solitary kopje. The moonlight, like the narrative, reveals the scene to us, framing these objects in an oppressive beauty. The narrative draws attention to its own attempt to constrain the ge geographical expanse into a unidimensional and thus comprehensible realist narrative. Just a few pages later, Lindell, the novel's heroine, sits on the floor threading beads. When asked by her cousin, M, why her beads never fall off her needle, she replies, I try, that is why. Located, located close to the ground, Shrana's female protagonist enacts a metaphor that alludes to the thread of the novel's narrative, which, if an eye is not kept on its sequential ordering, can be lost. As the narratologist Mika Bal explains, the very effort to thread narrative sequence, a narrative's sequences together forces one to reflect on the other elements and aspects. It is literary narrative's way of achieving a density that is akin to the simultaneity often claimed for visual images as distinct from literature. It is through a narrative that is self-conscious of its own construction 
that Schreiner draws attention to the imagined or fictive nature of the order it attempts to produce. In this metatextual move, Schreiner's novel conveys the inadequacy of a Western literary tradition and its ideological agendas in the face of the expanse of the, of the Southern African landscape. For the coloniser, narrative becomes a way of mastering, looking from above, dividing up and controlling geographical space, a process that ignores the density of its lived-in quality. In this case, the Native, African, Native Africans that lived in the land prior to colonial occupation. As Baal tells us, it is by providing a landscape with a history that memory is spatialised, a process that undoes the killing of space as lived. Schreiner gives the landscape this history fewer than ten pages into the novel when she describes some Bushman paintings whose red and black pigments have been preserved through long years. Deborah Chappell has pointed out that these paintings allude to a suppressed pre-colonial history, while simultaneously denying their creators or ancestral interpreters access to the present narrative moment. The presence of a colonised people is inscribed visually into the landscape, a presence that is made increasingly conspicuous by its silence. As Mascheret would have it, the literary work gives the measure of a difference, reveals a determinate absence, resorts to an eloquent silence. However, Schreiner's male protagonist, Waldo, who is, incidentally, also frequently represented as uh, lying or squatting close to the ground, gives voice to this silence in a speech act that interrupts Lindell's imaginative reconstruction of Napoleon Bonaparte's imperial ambition. Whereas for Lindell, Napoleon, acting here as a metonym for imperial expansion, is the greatest man who ever lived, Waldo is more interested in the physical geography of the cop jail on which they sit and interrupts her, if they could talk, if they could tell us now, he says, as he moves his hands over the surrounding rocks. Schreiner's narrative allegorically dislodges Lindell's account of Napoleonic imperialism by introducing a segment of geographical space upon which the voiceless histories of the dispossessed are inscribed. Though silent, the discursive impact of this moment is acutely political in its invocation of the socio-economic realities and colonial violence to which it alludes. Bartmore Gilbert has gone so far as to liken this moment in which Waldo reads the physical landscape to the work of the subaltern stu studies group as he searches for signs of the increasingly occluded Bushman histories inscribed within its contours at a time when Southern Africa was being rapidly transformed by new forms of colonial exploitation. Schreiner's novel is set somewhere between 1858 and 1868, a period that teeters on the edge of South Africa's political and industrial transformation and commercial development that was triggered by the discovery of the diamond mines in Kimberley in 1869. As Carolyn Burdett has shown, Lindell's dream of wearing diamonds in her hair alerts us to Schreiner's own historical advantage in knowing that, by the 1870s, much of the South Southern African landscape would have been transformed by the invasion of venture capitalists seeking profitable resource extraction. This transformation was compounded by the discovery of gold in the Transvaal in 1882 and becomes a central preoccupation of Schreiner's later political and literary writings. The pseudonym under which uh, Schreiner first published African Farm, Ralph Iron, itself alludes to this process of resource extraction, as well as reinforcing the centrality of the African landscape. Ralph, when combined with the names of Schreiner's characters Waldo and M, references the American landscape philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose influ influence on, Shriner's, uh, on Shriner pervades African farms' allegorical and philosophical tangents. But as Gerald Monsman has shown, within the context of South Africa Golden Diamonds, Shriner's pseudonym also references the iron that is embedded within the iron stones of the Copjays. This reference uh, directs the reader towards Shriner's hidden narration 
of the fall from, from pastoralism into the new mercantilism and industrialism that fueled a transnational and profit-oriented imperialism. However, despite this historical hindsight, Shrine's African Farm remains set in a resolutely unmodern context, or what Eastai calls an underdeveloped zone. He likens African Farm's colonial environment to the settings of Comrades Lord Jim, uh, Virginia Woolf's The Voyage Out, and James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, all of whom employ a similar geographical frame that complements their experimentative narrative form as they work to resist the tyranny of the plot. Schreiner's metanarratological construction runs against the grain of a realist narrative tradition nearly two decades before the first of these canonised modernist authors, thus complicating the linear chrono chronology of a simple literary historiography. Furthermore, by embedding her exper experimental narrative form within the southern, southern African landscape, Schreiner exposes the structuring contradiction between the progressive imperial ethos of worldwide modernisation and the stubborn facts of uneven or un underdevelopment in the colonial periphery. It is the spatial disjunction enabled by the novels and Shriners' colonial setting that enables her to self-consciously engage with a number of metropolitan discourses while simultaneously subverting and deconstructing them to make space for an intensely political crit critique of the various ideologies that fueled a patriarchal imperialism. In the preface to the second edition of her novel, Schreiner acknowledges a kind critic of African Farm who says that he would better have liked the little book if it had been a history of wild adventure, of encount encounters with ravening lions and hairbreadth escapes. The most obvious contemporaneous example of the sort of narrative this critic demands would be the adventure fiction of Ryder Haggard, whose novels chart the uninterrupted linear progression of male imperial figures into unknown colonial territories and who often emerge from the alien environment having successfully stolen the treasures buried within it. But Schreiner rejects the criticism, claiming that such works are best written in Piccadilly or in the Strand. There, the gifts of creative uh, imagination, untrammeled by contact with any fact, may spread their wings. Schreiner's direct experience of the Southern African environment, environment and the realities of a violent colonialism make genres such as the imperial romance or the realist novel, novel and suitable um, narrative conventions in which to paint the scenes, she tells us, in which she has grown. Schreiner alludes to the prescribed nature of these traditional narrative patterns in her preface as the stage method. Each character is duly marshaled at first and ticketed. We know with an immutable certainty that at the right crisis, each one will reappear, uh, reappear and act his part, and when the curtain falls, all will stand before it bowing. Schreiner rejects this inherited and distinctly European narrative model for another method, the method of life we all lead. Here nothing can be prophesied. There is a strange coming and going of feet. Men appear, act and react upon each other and pass away. When the crisis comes, the man who had fit it does not return. When the curtain falls, no one is ready. In justifying her departure from a European literary tradition, we find Schreiner writing Macbeth's famous words, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his arrow upon the stage and then is heard no more. Schreiner's invocation of Shakespeare draws us forward to the novel's climactic scene when Lindell, on her deathbed, rejects a book with a linear narrative. And I quote, Will you open the window, she said, almost querulously, and throw this book out? It's so utterly foolish. I thought it was a valuable book, but the words are merely strung together. They make no sense. Then she turned to read and leaned her little elbows resolutely on the great volume and knit her brows. This was Shakespeare. It must mean something. 
The words, merely strung together, suggest a linear and constrained narrowness that Lindell, in a fictional enactment of Schreiner's professed rejection, literally throws out of the window. In this moment, however, we are reminded of Lindell's first appearance when she sits on the floor threading beads. The self-referential web of Schreiner's text throws the reader back and forth within its own narrative, rejecting any progressive or chronological development by moving spatially within itself and beyond to a Western literary tradition that is here embodied for Schreiner within the work of Shakespeare. In 1850, Ralph Waldo Emerson, whose influence on African farmers has already been noted, observed that, observed that Shakespeare wrote the text of modern Anglo-European life. We might consider Schreiner's invocation of the great playwright as both a conscious acknowledgement and rejection of a broader and distinctly male European literary tradition. <coughs> this invocation and subversion of Western narrative style reverberates throughout the 20th century in the work of many now canonical post-colonial authors, such as Chinua Chaben and Gugu Ationgo. But Schreiner remains on the periphery of even this accepted literary historiography. Her text, extraordinarily ahead of its time, refuses to be incorporated into these grand narrative traditions. However, rather than calling for the insertion of Schreiner's no novel into a post-colonial canon, I think it's more appropriate to understand her text as what Barbara Hollow has called resistant literature. Uh, these texts offer, within their narratives, a more developed historical analysis as of the circumstances of economic, political and cultural domination, acting as immediate interventions into the historical record, attempting to produce and impart new historical facts and analyses. The power of Schreiner's novel is its repeated resistance to definition, and a genre has yet to merge into which it can be comfortably slotted. Even Kurt Zier, who includes the story of an African farm within the category of a, the South African farm novel, portrays Schreiner as the great anti-pastoral writer. Whereas later farm novels were developed by the 1930s into an ideological important genre justifying, justifying colonial subjugation and white supremacist claims to Africana ownership of the land, Schreiner's portrayal of the idleness of, her, of life on her late 19th century farm actually underscores the centrality of the question of labour in the South African pastoral. Who does the manual labour on the farm? The native Africans, whose chief labour in the novel, as Anne McClintock has demonstrated, is to perform boundary work. They stand at thresholds, windows and walls, opening and shutting doors. Though portrayed as silent figures on the boundaries of the peripheral space, this silent but constant presence betrays imperialism's ideological agendas by alluding to the socio-economic realities it produced. In her later polemic work, in which Schreiner was unusual in her anti-racism and activism on behalf of the rights of native Africans, she refused to engage with issues of racial equality, rather justifying her arguments on the basis of the African population as a key economic force on which the colony relied. In this move, she exhibits a refusal to engage with ideologically fraught debates surrounding issues of race in order to make her political arguments more effective. As Paula Kreb argues, if Schreiner is to make a strong case for economic and political rights, she cannot risk losing the argument by allowing her readers to think that she is arguing for immediate social equality as well. Though Schreiner never felt able to write Native African history and agency directly into her literary narratives, nor to tackle issues of racial equality head on, the story of an African farm lays a crucial discursive groundwork that will be taken up by many no novelists throughout the 20th century. For example, Solomon Pleike's novel Moody, uh, which was the first novel to uh, be published by a black, black African when he wrote it in 1913, is dedicated to Pleike's daughter, who, not, coincident, not coincidentally, is named Olive. Pleike's numerous references to Shakespeare and his portrayal of the Southern African landscape 
indicate a close reading of Schreiner's novel as he draws on her textual techniques to produce a historical narrative of black Southern Africa during the 19th century. Likewise, Schreiner's implicit refusal to confront ra racial issues is taken, by William, taken up by William Plumer in his novel, novel Turbot Wolf, published in 1925, that directly addresses issues of social equality by challenging racist ideologies rooted in fears of miscegenation. This is to say nothing of her impact upon discourses of the new woman that were formative in their contribution to the birth of the suffragette movement in Britain at the end of the 19th century. Schreiner's self-conscious meta-narratives indicate her acute awareness of the historiographical moment into which she writes. She subverts patriarchal and imperialist grand narratives by acknowledging the intellectual discourses to which she owes much of her thought, while also whilst also emphasising both their and her own limitations. The spatial disjunction that her geographical relation enables give ri gives rise to a conceptual gap within which she can unravel the professed totality of metropolitan discourses, and from which her ungainly platypus, The Story of an African Farm, critiques the socio-economic and political realities of a violent, male-dominated colonialism.